Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. All right, as we have been doing throughout uh, Advent and Christmas, Christmas Eve, and today being our last a Sunday celebration of Christmas. We've been reading these Old Testament prof- prophetic voices, Isaiah, Micah, others like them, uh, and trying to see some of the connections between the Old Testament uh, prophets as well as the New Testament story, the Christmas story. And so today we'll begin with Isaiah uh, chapter 60, verses 1 through 6, and you will hear some real important words and themes uh, that connect right to the Gospel of Matthew. So I invite you to hear these words of Scripture. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For the darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from far away. Your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. And you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and rejoice. Because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. In literature, that's what we call foreshadowing, right? Are you with me? All right, so now we'll turn to the Gospel of Matthew and you will hear some similar themes here. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the story of the epiphany, and it kind of wraps up the Christmas story, the narrative story of Jesus' birth. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. And when they heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. This is the word of God. Oh. Sorry. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They knelt down to pay him homage. Opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. I almost left out the most important part. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Yes, God, it is with great thanksgiving in our hearts that we gather to worship today. We give thanks for this holy season in which we have joined in fellowship, in which we have celebrated Christ's birth, as we have lifted our our voices in song, as we have gathered around your table, as we have shared gifts with you and with one another. Our hearts have been enriched and our, our lives have been brought such joy in this holy season. And today we conclude this Christmas story as we remember the wise men and the magi. We ask again that though these words are old, we ask that they would be new to us, alive by the power of your Spirit, as we read and as we remember 
these stories. This in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, this lady pictured here uh, is Reverend Nadia Bowles Weber. Reverend Nadia Bowles Weber. You may have seen her or maybe have seen her on television or or maybe seen some books titled by her. Uh, She is an ordained Lutheran priest who uh, works in Denver, Colorado, and she guides overseas, pastors the Church of Sinners and Saints. It's a Lutheran church. And I offer this image to you just as a way of saying that she has a particular personality about her ministry and about her preaching specifically. You can see that she looks a little bit different than I do. She's kind of got an edgy look about her, kind of a rock star look in some sense, right? And she sort of crafted this pastoral personality with a lot of intentionality. Uh, and I don't say that as any way to degrade her or judge her. Uh, this is kind of who she is and who she chooses to be. And she kind of preaches and speaks and ministers in a sort of edgy way. Uh, she's even written and said some things that maybe are a little too far even for me. But she does so uh, because she is trying to reach people who don't typically come to church. Right? And so you can think of a large city like Denver. Uh, she has a strategic mission in mind that she's going to reach unchurched people, people who don't feel welcome and included in a typical church setting. And so this has been her life's work in her ministry. And she's been really successful uh, in our mainline tradition in the Lutheran, Episcopalian, <coughs> Presbyterian, Methodist world. Uh, she's kind of lifted up as someone who has had a particular a particular impact on a city uh, in a way that, that most churches and most ministries have not. Uh, reaching new people and different people with her style, with her approach, with her preaching, with her persona. Uh, and it's really been celebrated across many fronts, particularly in our world, as someone who's, who's growing the church in ways that many churches are not growing. So as you can imagine, uh, her ministry has gotten more popular there in a large city. Uh, the church has grown, and, and she's traveled and written books, you know, done all those sorts of things. And as that has happened, uh, more people have taken an interest in her and her ministry and her church. And so her church has found that, that more people are showing up on Sundays, right? And not only are more people showing up on Sundays, but they're coming wearing the strangest things. They come wearing like, like slacks and dress shoes uh, and button-up shirts and blazers and dresses, right? And they come to this church, and, and these people who are already there, they're looking at these strange outsiders, and they're kind of thinking like, you don't belong here right? Why are you dressed like that? Why are you all dressed up, right? I mean, people who, well, look like this, right? Why would you come to a church like ours, right? And Nadia Bowles-Weber tells that story, and, and many preachers have repeated it because it's kind of an interesting play, right? This church that sees itself as particularly invitational and, and, and does a lot of outreach, particularly aggressive, progressive, everybody's welcome, everybody's included, until some people show up that don't necessarily look like them, right? And that begins to raise some questions about who really should be involved, who can be welcomed, and who can be trusted. It's kind of a reminder that no matter how welcoming and inclusive and and thoughtful we are about our our ushering and our gathering and and all that, uh, that we, we still have some sort of unspoken expectations about who should be included in church, what they should look like, what they should wear, Probably they should look like us. That's kind of the unspoken expectation. Today we uh, are kind of wrapping up the the Christmas story. Uh, Really the the story of the Magi, the story of the wise men, it really kind of comes after Christmas. It's not exactly at the manger scene. Uh, It's a little bit later, but it's still part of the the Jesus baby story, right? This is part of when Jesus is very little. 
the story up until now, think about what we've done through Advent, through Christmas Eve. The story up until now has been a thoroughly Jewish story, right? And we've talked specifically about, each week we've been reading from the Old Testament, the, the prophets, and we've talked about John the Baptist, how his ministry was foretold by the Old Testament prophets, how the ministries of the Old Testament prophets and John the Baptist were a ministry of, of preparation. And this is kind of a theme in Advent, right? Preparing for a Savior to come, not just any Savior, but the Messiah of the people who have been chosen by God, the Jewish people. And so the story of Christmas is a Jewish story. It is the story of the Old Testament that has come to fruition in a particular way in this, in this person, Jesus. And so we've, we've tried to make all those connections. Some of those sermons and stories were more subtle, some were more specific, but been really trying to, trying to put that together, right? The Christmas story is a story that was born out of the Old Testament hope for a Messiah and the Old Testament vision of a Savior. And even the story itself, of course, Mary is, a, is an unmarried, a yet-to-be-married young virgin Jewish person herself. Joseph is a young, faithful Jewish man. They're specifically Jewish, right? Chosen from a Jewish family. Jesus is born in the lineage of David, the Jewish city of David. They go to to be born, right, in Bethlehem. So everything about the Christmas story just kind of saturated with Old Testament imagery and importance, right? There's nothing about it that should leave us any doubt that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior, the one who was witnessed to and, and foretold in the Old Testament, and all these elements have come together, right? This is the Jewish hope that has happened here at Christmas, until we get to the Gospel of Matthew. We get to the Gospel of Matthew. Now, on Christmas Eve, we often read from the Gospel of Luke, as we did this year, verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, right? Angels and shepherds, and they're born in the manger, wrapped in, in cloths, right? That's the Christmas story that we read on Christmas Eve. But, but in Matthew's Gospel, we get this extra little chapter. And this extra little chapter tells us about these, these figures that we often call wise men. Wise men is probably not a great word. The word is, is magi. And magi is a little bit more helpful because it, it indicates who they really are. Uh, these magi, the word that's being used there in the New Testament, are from, as we just sang in the song, from the Orient, from Persia. And they are, as we understand them, Zoroastrian priest. Zoroastrian priest. Did you know this? Yes, you've probably heard it about once a year on Epiphany Sunday, right? These magi are Zoroastrian priests. Now, that's important. Because think about all we've read in, in Advent and the Christmas story, all Jewish. And then all of a sudden, Matthew tells us, and then the Magi came. It's kind of the first time that the story has, has offered us something different. No longer a Jewish story, no longer a story about the Old Testament, but now a story of the Magi, the Zoroastrian priest. What we know about Zoroastrian priests, what we know about the Zoroastrian religion, is they did things like read the stars, interpreted dreams, they offered horoscopes, and they tried to tell people's future and what would go on in their lives. This was a, a very real religion in Jesus' day and time. It was located in what we think of today as Iran, and it kind of predates Islam, right? So these are religious figures that are distinctly non-Jewish, right? And they have some particular beliefs. Zoroastrians, uh, they believe that their leader, the Zoroastar, uh, was miraculously conceived in the womb of a 15-year-old virgin. Doesn't that sound familiar, right? Uh, and they believe that their, their leader started his ministry at age 30 and, and, and defeated many of Satan's temptations. You can see some parallels here. 
But they also believed and they also predicted that other virgins would conceive other divinely appointed prophets and leaders. And they believed by looking at the stars that they could foretell the miraculous births of religious figures. All right, those are just facts about the Zoroastrian religion. And so it's a pretty remarkable thing that Matthew tells us that in chapter 2 here that these Zoroastrian priests, another religion, another field altogether, people who believe in dreams and, and follow the stars, that they have been putting together the signs in the sky and that they have come to sense that Jesus has been born. And not only has Jesus been, been born, but they're, they're going to find him, to honor him and to celebrate him. It's hard to overstate, hard to overstate, what a radical step in a different direction the story of the Magi is compared to the rest of the Christmas story. So many elements of the Christmas story have been coming together in a way that fits so well with the Old Testament. And then out of nowhere, Matthew drops on us. And then these Zoroastrian priests showed up. And they showed up because they saw the star. And the star was their way of understanding that Jesus had been born. And they went to pay him homage. And so they brought him gifts. It's kind of Matthew's way of telling us that Jesus, there's something about Jesus. Jesus is going to draw not only people from the Old Testament tradition, the Jewish tradition, Jesus is going to draw some very unlikely people to worship him, beginning with these magi. Now, of course, we remember and celebrate that they brought gifts to Jesus. Uh, today, in our traditions, our Christmas traditions, many of us uh, give gifts. And I assume you did in your family, maybe in your immediate family, maybe with your larger family. You bought and exchanged gifts with one another. We do that largely because, or at least partly because of this tradition, right? Uh, that when Jesus is born, we think an appropriate way to celebrate is to give our children an Xbox. Amen? All right. I don't know how we got there, but that's something that we do, right? So we give gifts. We give gifts in my family, particularly in my family. We remember and celebrate the gift giving of my grandmother on my mom's side. She, she died when I was in seminary, so that's been about 10 years ago. Uh, and so she's been gone a little while, but we remember so fondly her gift giving because she loved to give gifts. And she loved to shop and she loved to, to celebrate Christmas. Um, she was a big gift giver, right? And so it was always exciting to go to grandma's house and get gifts. Some of the gifts were really good. Uh, some came off the clearance rack, right? You know this type? Yeah. I remember particularly, and we always laugh about this every Christmas, at like age 10 or 11, I opened up one gift, and it was a 3XL sweatshirt, right? Uh, and it felt like a, a king sheet off a bed, you know? The, and we laugh about that because clearly she bought it on sale, and she convinced herself that I would grow into it. I don't know what she <laughs> meant by that. But I was thinking this holiday season that maybe Grandma was ahead of her time, right? Maybe this is what she was imagining. Did any of you receive or give a huggle this Christmas? Raise your hand if you did. A huggle? It's a giant... You got one over here? Yes? Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So some gifts are better than others, right? I don't know if the huggle's good or bad. I'll have to get a review from, from Sophie. So this idea of giving gifts, right, this tradition of giving gifts is at least rooted in part with the tradition of the Magi. So let's talk a little bit about what they give Jesus. Well, you heard Chase reciting it there with the, with the children. They give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and pe pre preachers, pastors, scholars have often tried to kind of find some sim symbolic, you know, reasoning behind this. And so I thought I might offer a little bit of that to you today to help connect why they give Jesus these gifts. Gold there in the center, gold is probably the most obvious, right? We know that gold is a, is a, is a highly sought after, a fine element of great value. Uh, it could be melted down and formed into jewelry, or, or it could be used to adorn a particular home or, or, or a castle or whatever the case may be. 
but, it, but in all those cases, gold is typically reserved for someone of royal stature, right? You had to be wealthy, you had to have some claim, some political acclaim, some authority to have gifts of gold. And so it seems to be in this case that as these Zoroastrian priests bring Jesus, think about this, baby, infant Jesus, as they bring him gold, they're doing so in a very, very symbolic way, right? Obviously, gold is not going to do the baby Jesus a lot of good, right? But they're giving him gold because they're recognizing his, his kingliness, right, his authority, right? And they're giving him gold because Jesus is not only king of the Jews, which we've been talking about throughout Advent and Christmas, but now we have Zoroastrian priests, another religion, giving Jesus gold and recognizing him as a king. It's a pretty big deal, right? So it's not just king of the Jews, but this seems to be telling us like king of, of the Gentiles as well. King of Jews and Gentiles, and that pretty much includes everyone. King of, king of everyone, right? So they give Jesus gold because Jesus is a king. Why do they give Jesus frankincense? Well, frankincense and myrrh are similar in that both of them are resins from a tree, uh, they're resins that drip out of a tree, just like you've seen in trees around here. The resins drip out, and then they harden and crystallize, and then they can be sold and, and, and dealt uh, among other people. After they're crystallized, they can be ground down, and when they're ground down, they're burned as an incense. And so that's true with both frankincense and myrrh, and you can see them there in this image. Frankincense is a word we hear a little bit in the Old Testament and in other sources. We know that frankincense was used in religious worship. Specifically in Exodus, uh, God tells Moses to use frankincense, right? To use frankincense as he gathers the people for worship. And we have a few other places in the Old Testament where it's talked about uh, the incense, the, the fragrances that they use in worship. And so it seems to be that frankincense represents this sort of role in which Jesus will have as a, as a religious leader, right? We might think of him as a, as a, as a prophetic figure, kind of like Moses, kind of like John the Baptist, kind of like those other voices in the Old Testament. The frankincense is, is a fragrance that's associated with worship, right? So giving Jesus frankincense is a way of saying, this is someone who will be a, 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 a speaker, a teacher, a prophet, right? Someone who will have that role. So gold for a king, frankincense for a teacher or for a prophet. And then the last one is myrrh. Myrrh is, is maybe the most interesting one because myrrh, uh, of all the three, gets picked up even more in the New Testament, right? We have this story in the Gospel of Matthew where the, where the, where the Magi bring uh, Jesus the myrrh, but do you remember there's another story that occurs in multiple Gospels where Jesus is anointed, where his feet are anointed in the middle of his life, and they anoint him with, with myrrh, right? And so that story shows up again. And then do you know where else myrrh shows up in the life of Jesus? Both in, in John's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, when they're preparing Jesus to be buried, they go and get claws and they get fragrances, they get myrrh, right? And so myrrh, unlike frankincense, which is associated with worship, myrrh is associated with anointing, maybe medicinal care, and certainly with burial, right? When bodies were prepared to be buried, they were often uh, saturated with myrrh, right? So that particular fragrance, in this case, is associated with death, right? And so when the Zoroastrian priests, when the Magi give Jesus myrrh, that seems to be a sort of symbolic representation of his, not only his life and his ministry, but his death, right? There's something about Jesus and his dying that will be sacrificially important. And of course, we, we have the ability to kind of put all that together ourselves. We know that Jesus is put to death, but is then resurrected. And so his death holds a, holds a certain power uh, over, over, uh, over evil and, and over sin, and so these Zoroastrian priests can kind of see that in these gifts. And, and so this may be what we think of as Jesus as, 
as the priest, as the great high priest who is not only performing the sacrifice, but actually becomes the sacrifice himself. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, they, they kind of represent, not in a one-to-one way, you kind of got to be creative, but they kind of represent this threefold office of Jesus that we sometimes talk about. Gold for a king, frankincense for a prophet, uh, and myrrh for a priest, the one who performs the sacrifice. King, prophet, and priest. We sometimes use that threefold definition to talk about the ministry of Jesus. And here we have these Zoroastrian priests who are kind of putting it together, even outside of the Jewish tradition. And so it's a very odd and peculiar and insightful and cool thing that we have these other religious figures who come to give, give, come to give Jesus these strange but fitting gifts. Strange but fitting gifts. I remember in December when I was talking to a few people, a few people here in the church, just about Advent, and, hey, do you know about Advent? Did you grow up doing Advent? What does Advent mean to you? And, and openly, you know, some people will say, like, Advent's kind of weird, right? Like, yeah, it is kind of weird, right? Like, December the 1st, the rest of the world has gone on into Christmas, and here at church, we're reading about John the Baptist and you brood of vipers, and we're telling you to confess your sin and prepare for the coming of the Lord. Advent's kind of weird as we're telling you to wait and wait and wait and wait as we get ready to celebrate Christmas. My sense is that doing this today, what we're doing with Epiphany, that's also a little bit weird, that most of the world has moved on from Christmas, Christmas is over, the stores look like they did before, we're ready to get on with the new year, the new school year, life is moving on. But here at church today, we're saying, wait, 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 not yet, Christmas is not quite over, we need to remember the the Magi. And it's kind of unique in the Christian tradition that we give these, think about this, we give these Zoroastrian priests, we give these religious leaders from a pagan tradition, we give them their own holiday, essentially, Epiphany, where we come to remember what they did, how they found Jesus, how they sought him out, how they gave him these important gifts of significance. And we do this to remember that these were people that were not Jewish, Right? I love it. It's kind of the church's way of wrapping up this story, this Christmas story that you thought was kind of predictable. You thought you kind of had a handle on it. Okay, Old Testament prophecies, a Savior will be born. Okay, we we kind of get Christmas. And then out of nowhere, we get these magi. It's kind of fitting that we do this here at the beginning of the new year. Like, just as we're putting our new year plans together here at the church, as we're working on scheduling and budgeting, and and we're laying out all of our predictions for 2022, Matthew sort of tells us, like, Okay, but just remember, Jesus has a way of attracting the strangest people, and they sometimes bring the most weird gifts. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for the testimony of not only the tradition in Scripture, the tradition of the Jewish people, but we give thanks for the faithfulness and the testimony of others who have seen your light who have followed the star, and who have come to share gifts. God, we pray, too, that we might have an imagination, that we might have a heart and a spirit willing to see the great diversity of people who have been called to worship you. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.